Welcome to episode 28 of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. Marion Davies had been making pictures in MGM for a decade when she and her paramour, William Randolph Hearst, came into conflict with Louis B. Mayer. Hearst had wanted Marion to star in The Barretts of Wimpole Street. He felt it was a perfect vehicle for her. Marion was tired of doing comedy and she wanted a challenging dramatic role for a change. According to Jack Warner in his memoir, My First Hundred Years in Hollywood, Mayer refused. He insisted that Marion stick to light comedy. Norma Shearer had already been cast in the starring role by her husband, Irving Thalberg, head of production. Hearst could not browbeat Mayer into changing his mind, so he rang Jack Warner and asked about moving their Cosmopolitan pictures to Warner Brothers Studio. In an essay included in Lulu in Hollywood, Louise Brooks uses a bit of hyperbole when she characterizes Marion's change of studios as, quote, leaving a palace for a stable. Warner's was hardly as rustic as all that. Jack Warner plays it cool in the retelling. He describes how he accepted their offer as though he were scheduling an appointment with his barber. In reality, I'm sure Warner was flushed red as a cherry at the prospect of having the most powerful man in in the American media in his back pocket. You can bet he enjoyed being flown out to San Simeon every weekend on a charter flight so that he could screen the latest from a studio for their guests, a collection of industry star power. The first order of business in their new merger was to transport Marion's quaintly named bungalow from MGM and Culver City to Warner's and Burbank. The 20-room mansion had to be cut in three separate pieces. Streets were closed. Telephone wires were raised. Once it was installed on the lot, Jack Warner was rankled by the dark brown color of her bungalow set against the uniform pale pink buildings of Warner Studios. He asked Marion if she could change the color to blend in. She replied, tell you what I'll do, Jack. You paint the entire studio to match my bungalow and I'll pay for it. Warner recalled, the building was the only source of real dissension I ever had with Marion Davies. And I discovered that behind her laughing eyes and witty outlook on the picture business, she could be as firm as the Chinese wall. Marion's bungalow stayed dark brown. Marion was as generous as she was firm. Mervyn Leroy, who directed Page Miss Glory, her first picture for Warner's, made in 1935, noted in his memoir, Take One, that at Christmas, Marion brought racks and racks of her clothes to the studio. Of the hundreds of dresses she brought, many she probably only wore once, and they were the best money could buy. She called the extras in so they could have their choice among her frocks. Once production began on Page Miss Glory, Mary Astor remembered frequent invitations to lunch in Marion's bungalow. In her memoir, A Life on Film, Mary Astor describes Marion as holding what she called a bright anxiety in her face, not from worry over losing her position as with other women kept by important men, but from trying to please a difficult man whom she loved. Astor wrote, Whenever we had a chance, Marion and Patsy Kelly and I got together on Marion's portable on the set for Girl Talk. 
and later in the day, when we were getting tired and cranky, champagne would appear in an ice bucket, and there would be much caution about answering the door and responding to a knock saying either, I'm not dressed, or, oh, it's you, want to snort? For drinking on set was forbidden, and besides, Mr. Hurst didn't like Marion to drink at all. Mervyn Leroy, who was directing, pretended to know nothing about it, but would sometimes say, well, guess we're going to have to quit early tonight when our giggling got a bit high-pitched or when Marion's stutter disappeared completely. Mary Astor summarized Marion as, she was not sharp and acquisitive, nor was she a dumb blonde. She was bright and funny. Her warmth and kindness could have taught many of us a great deal about the art of loving. Tell me you wouldn't give your pinky toes to have been part of that sassmouthed dame trio for bubbles and red-hot gossip. In the picture's first scene, when Marion's character arrives in New York, she's wearing a flat-brimmed hat that looks like it was nicked from Buster Keaton's gag trunk. Paige Miss Glory charts the rise of a chambermaid to instant stardom. Films about becoming a star are a special genre within women's pictures. The Star is Born franchise, which originally began with What Price Hollywood from 1932, never gets old. We're set for another remake next year with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Marion was well-seasoned in star impressions. She spoofed stars like Lillian Gish, Pola Negri, and Gloria Swanson in The Patsy from 1928, and Greta Garbo in Blondie of the Follies from 1932. She was able to locate the biggest trait of the stars and mimic them wholesale. With both Swanson and Garbo, Marion shows us how they use their mouth in a unique way. Garbo stretches her mouth across her entire face in ecstatic longing, and Swanson purses her lips in consternation. Both are spot on. One of the most bankable plot lines she enjoyed over the, the course of her career was one where her beauty was overlooked or ignored, usually by some man she loved. Beauty's Worth, which premiered in 1922, had Marion and Dowdy Puritan togs, so that the man she loved passed her over as unfashionable and plain. All she needed was a style makeover to make him see the real woman underneath the frumpy dresses. In her picture from 1923, Little Old New York, she impersonates her deceased brother to gain a family inheritance. Dressed up in boys' clothes, her feminine allure loses its power. During the Patsy, a riotously funny picture, Marion does everything she can to get can to get the attention of the man she loves. She also performs those devastating impressions. Here in this picture, Marion delivers a quicksilver amalgam of 1930s glamour queens. Two grifters, Pat O'Brien and Frank McHugh, stalwarts of Warner's Irish Mafia, flip through a glossy magazine and select all the best bits from the reigning ladies of the silver screen. Pat O'Brien creates the womanly ideal from Garbo's mouth, Jean Harlow's hair, Marlena Dietrich's ankles, and the nose of Kay Francis. It's kind of nutty when you think about it. Because of the production code, TNA becomes mouth, hair, ankles, and nose, as if the periphery of a woman was really what drew men to photographs of women in magazines. They decide to doctor up a composite from all the stars and send it in to win a beauty contest held by a radio sponsor. Meanwhile, Marion takes a shine to the pair with empty pockets. Patsy Kelly, though, sizes them up for Marion's Loretta. She tells her, there are a couple of four flushers. They haven't got a quarter between them. Patsy Kelly could strip the varnish from an antique credenza with her blistering wit.
Guileless Marion steals food for them and pecks around like a mother hen, with eight different types of guest towels folded over her arms. Once Dick Powell turns up as the aviator Bingo Nelson, wearing what looks like an SS uniform and jackboots, she falls hard. Bingo Nelson doesn't notice her, nor do the scam artists. In a stiff chambray uniform to the ankles, an apron, and her hair tucked under the elastic white dust cap, Marion carries an enormous feather duster. She's completely incognito as a chambermaid. She looks like she was the inspiration for Carol Burnett's charwoman character from her television variety show back from the 1970s. Erica Lopez, in her exquisite Tomato Rodriguez book series, said that the quickest way to make a woman invisible was to put her in a brown muumuu. Marion's maid uniform achieves the same effect. Visually, she might as well be in a tent dress or a nun's habit. Let's add two other items to Erica Lopez's list for how to make a woman disappear. Remove her eyelashes, keep them as light and short as a baby's, and hide her platinum barnet under a dust cap. Without lashes, her hair tucked in, and a severe dark lipstick that makes her lips seem thinner, and that shapeless uniform, Marion has a negative glamour ratio. But the way Marion says, hey, mista, with her cerulean eyes popped would melt a glacier. Marion can play a complete greenhorn without being an insufferable rube. She's always the right side of sweet and never a dope. You see it coming a mile away, but the plot does not develop exactly as expected. There's a brilliant moment when the grifters bring Miss Dawn Glory to life in a darkened developing room in a bath of chemicals. The scene plays like a modern version of the chemical dip that Victor Frankenstein used to bring his creature to life in Mary Shelley's novel. Here, Pat O'Brien and Frank McHugh make their creature a composite from trick photography rather than the body parts stolen by resurrection men who burgled the boneyards. They give birth to glamour in the modern way. Viewers know that Marion Davies will become Miss Don Glory. The best part, though, is that the men don't come up with the idea. Marion Davies' character, Loretta, makes the transition from chrysalis to butterfly, which reflects the interior logic of a woman's picture. Many women, after all, feel a long, dormant glamour queen inside themselves, just waiting for the right moment to emerge with a makeover. When we finally see her become Dawn Glory, she looks every inch a star. Marion's hair has been amped up to platinum in the salon already, then styled in smooth waves of the period. Her eyelashes are as thick and black as bat wings. Everything about her is radiant. Ori Kelly designed the white gown that she wears for her debut that features a dramatic feather spray from her chest like a pair of wings. The feather wings resemble the ones that Betty Davis wore to accept her a second Oscar in 1938 for Jezebel. The gowns are different colors and fabrics, but the feather embellishment is similar. Betty's wings are just a little bit more gathered and streamlined, but Ori Kelly made them both. The men, the grifters, can hardly believe their good luck now that they can toss a dame with a pulse to the press who clog their hallway with requests for an interview. Mary Astor doesn't have much to do. She's just playing Frank McHugh's girlfriend. At one point, though, in the middle of the reporter's frenzy, she asks reasonably, does anybody mind if I shriek? I could play that on a loop. 
The director, Mervyn Leroy, noted in his memoir that onset romances were the norm and that it would have been unnatural to expect that people playing lovers who worked closely for weeks would not develop some sort of emotional connection, if not a full-blown affair. Leroy said that Marion was entirely smitten with her on-screen love interests, puppy dog eyes and sighs and the whole bit. Leroy recalls that the leading man, Dick Powell, was terror-stricken. Some men may have been excited by the thrill of being with a famous mistress and would take the risk of angering a powerful man. Leroy says that they never engaged in an affair. But Marion's biographer, Fred Lawrence Giles, reports that Marion and Dick Powell did have an affair. Worst of all, Powell engaged in locker room talk and gossip about his romp with Marion. And she took the betrayal hard. But Hearst never found out, and he continued to like Powell for some reason. They made another film after Page Miss Glory, a period picture called Hearts Divided. Hal Wallace was less than kind to Marion in his book Star Maker, the autobiography of Hal Wallace. He complained about her drinking and temperamental behavior on set. Wallace fails to mention that one month after Page Miss Glory wrapped, Marion suffered a tremendous loss. Her beloved niece, Peppy Letterer, had leapt from the window of a sanatorium where she had been seeking treatment for cocaine addiction. Peppy was as good as a daughter to Marion. She spent more time with, with Marion and uh, Hearst than she did with her own mother, and Marion was heartbroken. It's worth noting that Jack Warner wrote that many people in the industry regarded Marion as the golden goose that never laid any eggs. He made a point of stating that although she only made four pictures for Warners before she retired from the screen, every one of them turned a solid profit. Louise Brooks referred to Page Miss Glory as a flop, but it ranked at number 44 at the box office for that year. It did better business than Shirley Temple's Our Little Girl at number 46, Clark Gable's Call of the Wild at number 50, or James Cagney's Frisco Kid at number 52. The script by Delmer Daves and Robert Lord has plenty of fast talking and rapid fire zingers. The supporting cast, after Mary Astor and Patsy Kelly, boasts other usual suspects from Warner's Murderer's Row, such as Alan Jenkins and Lyle Talbot, who always make a flashy turn as guys looking for an angle and a quick buck. Warner's studio was so smitten with the premise of Page Miss Glory that they made a cartoon version of it with their Merry Melodies series the following year. The plot follows a hotel bellboy who has a telegram to deliver for Miss Glory. He imagines a figure that resembles Platinum Marion Davies, but in reality, the, the star is a child who's a dead ringer for Shirley Temple. You can watch Page Miss Glory from 1935 and the cartoon of the same name from 1936 on Daily Motion. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Marion Davies' book, The Times We Had. I don't think Louis B. Mayer minded losing me so much. He did mind losing Mr. Hurst, if you know what I mean. Later he said to me, we have lost our queen. What he meant was he lost the power of the chess game, the visitors, and the press. I went up to San Simeon, and Jack Warner kept calling. He was really very kind. I don't think I worked for anybody nicer except Mr. Mayer. But I felt shy. I wouldn't go to the studio. When he called, I'd say, no, I'm sorry, I'll go when you present the script and we okay it, I said. Let's do our rehearsing up here. Jack said, oh no, now look, have a heart. I said, I'm terribly shy, let's do it all here, and when it's ready, I'll come down to the back door. 
you're homesick for MGM. I said, it isn't that. It's just that I've got stage fright, and I really did. We had the costumes all arranged up in San Simeon. Then I finally came down for my first test. I tried to crawl in the back way, but I couldn't. He had locked the back entrance, and I had to come in the front way. Nobody molested me. I was perfectly all right. That was the trouble. They gave me the air. I had gone too far. I got the freeze out. Nobody would talk to me. And I thought they, they'd like me for staying away, but they didn't like that at all. They thought I was a snob. When we started the production, it seemed awfully cold. I wasn't used to that. I was used to warmth. I was only frightened because I thought I was really a lousy actress, and they were all very good. I don't think they know what stage fright was. I would sit in my dressing room by myself. When you go to a new studio, you feel at a disadvantage. They're not wise to your little tricks, the little pranks you play. They think you're so nice, at least for a while. Then they find out you're really an imp, and you try everything under the sun to wreck everything as far as it possibly can be wrecked. I was only at Warner Studio for two years. I was supposed to stay longer, but I felt that I had worked long enough and I wanted some time off for myself. Although I was only making two pictures a year, I couldn't enjoy myself. Even though I could travel for about three months a year, when I knew I had to get back to the studio by a certain date, that I couldn't eat too much or get sunburned or freckled. I couldn't really have a good time. There was always a sign, no food allowed on the set and no drinks. But I used to give the boys on the set beer and sandwiches. And Clark used to buy them ice cream cones all the time. They worked hard, and we didn't stop at 5 o'clock, exactly. But somebody would say, we've got to go. And I'd say, well, anybody wants to stay on gets beer and sandwiches. A little coaxing, that was all. Over at Warner Brothers in the summertime, it was 148 degrees up in the flies, where the electricians were, and it was 122 on the stage. Ice cream was quite efficacious, and Clark used to bring it every day. The girls would faint on the set, even though they had those big airplane propellers with ice in front of them. They would faint like dead flies. I had on a fur costume and had to do dances. They were taking bets on me. A lot of them lost, even the time I was up at the top with this Madame Pompadour number. They had to put ice on my wrists and chain me to the rail. I was just on a shelf, and I'd look down and think, "Uh uh-oh. But I was used to the, the heat because I had been in the Follies in the summertime with fur costumes, so it didn't bother me much, but I didn't look down. I kept looking up, and all I saw was the top of the stage. I was up there f- for about maybe an hour and a half. Really, it was purgatory. Then the music started, and I felt the lights going on me, and I hiccuped. I was roasting. I kept wondering, how long is this going to last? Finally, it took ladders to get me down. The costume alone weighed about 56 pounds, and the assistant director had told them to keep their shirts on because I was on set, but I said, take everything off, including your pants, and they did. I was wild because I knew how hot it was up there. What made me finally decide to quit was something that happens to everybody. If you're a dramatic actress, you want to do comedy, and if you do comedy, you want to be a dramatic actress. I had big ideas for myself. I even wanted to do Shakespeare, even when I innately knew I couldn't do it. I thought I could do dramatics, but the other people didn't, and they were right. Not that I was a comedian, either. I just did stories with comedy in them. 
It was the story that counted, not the one doing the story. You're only as good as the story is written and no better. I also thought that if I ever wanted to go back to work again, I could always do so, but I never did want to go back. I wanted to take life easy, and once you get used to the lazy way of living, you find out you'd rather enjoy it, so I quit. I did miss the studio after a while. When I had nothing else to do, I'd go back. It was a postman's holiday. I'd go see how the other animals performed. We'd have a lunch in some place, too. I got over that after a while. Of course, W.R. had wanted me to quit a long time before I did, so that there would be plenty of time for travel. He didn't know what to do with himself, and there's nothing more interesting in the way of pleasure or occupation than having something to do. When you're working, you keep thinking of taking a long vacation and forgetting the whole thing. When you make the change, you have to make up your mind not to go back to the rut. I like to have good times, so I never went back. I'd go to San Simeon, then to Wintoon, then back to Los Angeles, and keep going back and forth. We didn't go to Europe again after 1937, but we had the beach house, and we went to Chicago once or twice, and I think we went to Florida one year, but I didn't care for it there. It had been nice, but it wasn't anymore. For a while, I was trying to kid myself along the lines that I didn't miss working. I could always go and visit the studio and say, I feel sorry for you. They had to get up early, go through scenes hundreds of times, and get so tired they couldn't eat, just flop into bed. My happiest days had been on the stage. I had had more fun on the stage than in the movies. Not fun exactly, but the exhilaration and excitement that the, uh, from the music and the glamour. Of all of the things I did, that's what I liked the most. That's was, that was when I was most insignificant, and that was why I liked it best. I had no responsibility. I just held up the backdrops. But the publicity pushed me along. I won't say I was successful because I don't know whether I was successful or not. I don't think anybody actually knows. That's up to the box office. But according to Mr. Mayer and Mr. Warner, there were no complaints on that score. The old saying is, it pays to advertise. I suppose that's all right, but I used to feel I had too much. If the producers gain by it, then you can't say you were overpublicized. But if I was overpublicized, it only hurt me. It didn't hurt the picture. When I did decide to get out, I made up my mind like that. They said, but you have a contract here. I said, I'm sorry, the contract's under the name of Cosmopolitan, and you sign the papers for Cosmopolitan to be released, and I go with it. Oh, was Jack Warner mad, and so was Harry Warner. They said I'd pulled a fast one. But I didn't want to work in pictures anymore. I'd been working awfully hard for quite a long time. At that time, Mr. Hearst was about 78 or so, and I felt he needed companionship. He was having some financial troubles at the time, too, and he was more upset than people realized. I thought the least I could do for a man who had been so wonderful and great, one of the greatest men ever, was to be a companion to him. Thanks very much for listening. Come back next time when I talk about Lena Horne and stormy weather from 1943. Thanks very much. I got an island Sun to ten.